NYP fam, what's going on? My name is Hector Santi Esteban, and I am your host, and I get way too geeked up about creating amazing podcasts that can fuel your lifestyle and your business. And I've been producing and promoting podcasts for almost a half decade now, and this show is to help you learn the things that do and do not work when it comes to marketing and monetizing your podcast. And my guest today is Jay Akunzo, and he's the host of Unthinkable and a creator who has done exactly what we were just talking about. He spent the last several years creating amazing podcasts, living an awesome lifestyle, and building a successful business all alongside it. And this interview talks about some of the realities that come along with being a creator and how he's been able to navigate some of the challenges that a ton of podcasters face. And I think that you're going to be surprised when you hear what his best tip for growing a show is. But enough rambling from me. Let's get into today's interview with Jay Akunzo, host of Unthinkable. All right, NYP fam, welcome Jay Akunzo to the show. Jay, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Jay, your show is the Unthinkable show, and I'd love for you to give us the... Well, first off, I love that it's a show. And a lot of people, I think, think of their podcast as just a podcast. But I love that yeah. you put that in the title, that it is a show. And so I'd love to hear eventually if that's a part of it, if you think of it as something more than just a podcast. Catch us up on the show, how it got here. You can share whatever you think is relevant, but you're killing it. You're crushing it. So give us the backstory behind it. Thanks. Every day is a struggle. <laughs> so let's we can dive into the crushing and the killing part because I, I'm here now. And I thought once I got here where I'm at, it would be a lot easier. Turns out, nope, I'm just here now cool, what's next? A lot of hard. So let's just pause there. Yeah, the name of the show is Just Unthinkable and the Twitter handle is Unthinkable Show, but it started in 2016. I was working for a venture capital firm as their VP of content, running a show for their brand too. And I just wanted my own personal laboratory for creativity. And at the time, being in marketing, specifically content marketing, there was a lot of commodity stuff. This is going to sound a lot like today, honestly. There's just a lot of junk content being published in high volumes from brands and individuals. And I always wished that this phrase content marketing, the word content never got its due. It was always about the marketing of content, not creating something worth marketing, right? The goal is not to grow followers. It's to create something worth following. It's like, it's actually, that's not the goal. The goal is to serve people better and out pops whatever metric you're looking at. So I wanted to create a show which questioned best practices specific then to marketing. And so I started telling all these stories and doing these like high production narrative style episodes with multiple voices and sound design and music. Again, trying to treat it like my personal laboratory. And over the years, as I talked to my audience, it kind of moved around. It was like, well, you're an accountant. Why are you listening to a show that's about marketing? Oh, because you're disillusioned by best practices. Okay, I see. Maybe that is truly the thrust of the show, but not applied to marketing, applied to the business world, applied to our careers. Two and a half years later, I wrote a book called Break the Wheel, using a lot of the material from the show and a lot of what I learned that was about questioning best practices and all the problems therein, uh, the problems with best practices, that is. And so that's been the show for quite a while. We sort of take a problem, take a big theme or big question that Google can't answer and launch like a years long investigation publicly. And instead of having it be really tactical how to, it's it's a very story driven show as a way of sort of being a Trojan horse, where in the moments where you need inspiration or you feel like listening to something interesting or uplifting or a story that helps you think critically about the world. You know, I like to say I'm doing my best Anthony Bourdain impression in my world, in my style. When you need nuance and to wade into the messiness of your work and you'd like to elevate that work, well, a tip, a trick, a hack, a cheat, that's not going to cut it anymore. So let me use this story as a Trojan horse where you feel entertained, you feel inspired, you feel your feels. But buried in that are important insights. 
or moments or space that lets you think critically about what you're doing with your work, that you can maybe shift your perspective and see the world better, which means the next time you go to ship anything, you're going to show up better. And so that's currently how the show runs. I mentioned questioning best practices. Today, we're exploring something else, which is resonance. Everyone's obsessed with reach. I get it, but resonance is it. Resonance is what matters. Reach is a proxy. Reach is a first step. Doesn't matter how many people know you exist if they don't care. How do you create things people care about and also that you care about? I have no idea. Let's go exploring. Let's go exploring resonance. And maybe a book comes out of that too. Yeah, what's interesting is the more that I've done this show and it started out being a tactics-driven show, I've realized that the real way to grow a show is just to create a better show. And unfortunately, I've just had to find lots of ways to say that and make that sexy. So I want to come back to this resonance thing. But what I really enjoyed about your show is you mentioned the high production of it. And it is an audio experience. And it's a, an hour-long audio experience. You do some shorter kind of rants that are more akin to what most people from the business world might put together for their podcast. But I'd love for you to take us back to why you decided to put all of this focus on the production aspect of it and how you handled that. Did you learn the sound design and kind of figure out how to do all this editing? Was it an outsourcing thing? Why did you decide to do that? And then how did you actually make that happen? The show is really a testament to what I think most of the creative world needs to hear in many ways, which is it's a practice. It's trial and error. You know, you talk to some of the world's best and sure, some of them have formal training, but none of them have formal training and no practice and they're successful. At some point, you got to muck around. You got to make mistakes. You got to learn on your own. And so I think I'm fortunate in that I have a lot of privilege in my life and a lot of supporting people in my life who gave me the confidence to say that thing I love from someone I admire. Yeah, I want to make that instead of, oh, I could never. Right. That's delusional. But I think it's a useful form of delusion that that creative people can harness to say, I understand what great work is. But my skills do not allow me to bring it forth quite yet, at least not to match what's in my head. Ira Glass famously called this the gap. There's a gap between your taste and your skills. And the only way to close that gap is to do a lot of work. So like the sound design, it's still pretty crude in some instances. And I look back and I cringe at recent episodes. But for the most part, when I go way back in the catalog, I'm like, this was a blunt instrument approach to adding music. It was like me trying to prove to the world, look, we have music. I have sound design. I have production value. It wasn't a tactful, artful, enhancing welcome form of using music or sound. And so how do you get better? Game tape. You do a thing. You consume it as your audience might. I love going for a walk and in equal ways, celebrating the fact that I made a thing and I wanted it to exist and now it does. And also critiquing that thing and figuring out where do I get bored or what sounded too cringy? Where did I hit somebody over the nose a little bit too much? It's like somebody said something sad and I played somber music. Was that appropriate or not? So it's just that extrapolated out over a long period of time. So I think it's those two things. And I think we need to embrace that. Tiny little incremental improvements, episode to episode or rep to rep, whatever you're creating, extrapolated out over lots of time. That to me is how creative people get better. And I have miles to go. I mean, I am not even in the territory I want to be in, but I am definitely not in the territory I started in. And it's just one step after another. That's it. There's no secret. Was there a moment where you realized that, and it could go anyway, either where you realized that you had come a long way with regards to sound design? So many people, they interview someone, maybe they do some basic leveling with their audio and they throw it up on there. But adding sound effects or adding these different things, was there a moment where you go like, oh, this is kind of cool or wow, I really have to learn because I'm not where I need to be? I think it's when I started thinking in sound or thinking in oral, I mean, A-U-R-A-L moments. 
instead of voice. I'll give an example. We did an episode called Gravy, which is about actually a beer brewery in Vermont called the Alchemist Brewery. And uh, they have a very famous IPA called Hetty Topper. At least if you're in New England like I am, it's very famous here, Hetty Topper. And they experienced quite a bit of tragedy as a business. Their brew pub actually was totally flooded in a freak storm. There's no floods in their area of Vermont. And it happened to them. And I thought to myself, like, if this were a movie or a TV show, like it'd be kind of cool to have a black screen for a time and you hear the sounds of the storm then you hear sounds of like things crashing and breaking. And then you hear like some music kind of come in and it starts ominous and then it fades out. And what you start hearing before you see any visuals still are birds chirping, almost like to suggest the dawning of a new day and the sun coming out. And my first words I remember as a narrator were something like, it's weird, isn't it? The morning after a bad storm can seem really nice. Like last night, a portal to another time just opened up and dumped out a bunch of debris and broken branches and stuff. And it doesn't quite match the feeling you have walking out into that sunny day, like the destruction you see. Because I wanted to create that dichotomy of like, this isn't a revered brand in their space and they have passionate fans. Seems like it's going well. They had such a terrible moment. And like, let me mess with that tension a little bit, but through sound instead of just my voice and my voice will come later. And that episode was years ago and I've repurposed it so people can find it not too buried in the feed. And it was that moment, I feel like, that kind of defines the difference between me being like a soundboard operator on a morning show with like the cheap sound effects, like a car horn beeping or something or a duck quacking and me trying to actually like use sound and music to help tell the story. Yeah, it seems that I'm drawn to podcasts and audio because I never had the face or the good looks for Instagram. So it always eliminated a medium or an obstacle, right? I think one of the guys from Radiolab, he said at Podcast Movement the other day that like, that's your job to put that together. The listener's job is to create that image. But what you're saying and what I'm hearing is that outside of voice, that's one tool, that's one element that you can use. But within sound, you can use music, you can use sound effects, you can use these different things to heighten or enhance the experience that you're trying to give to your listener. Yeah, a lot of people, they take sound and music and they treat it like chocolate drizzled onto whatever it is they're making. And sometimes chocolate does not add anything to this. Other times, it's a great addition. But if what you're drizzling onto is crap, you just have some chocolatey crap. And this is what I did early on. It's like, I wanted you to know, unlike all the business shows that I compete with, or you might categorize me, like people understand a genre, right? So it's like, unlike the genre that I occupy, expect something different. Hopefully that means better to the listeners I'm trying to serve. And I was trying to just basically tell them that, albeit I didn't say it out loud, but that's really what's coming through when I listen back to like early sound design and music. But also what was coming through was like the intention was to get to where I'm at today. But my current intention is to get to where I want to be in six years from now. So it's a constant process. And I've had the good fortune of interviewing and chatting with some really, really good sound designers, like folks that have done stuff for like 99% Invisible and shows of that caliber. And they have some heuristics. A lot of it is just kind of made up. Like I talked to James T. Green recently, and they have something called Muxture. Muxture, M-U-X is the shorthand for music in production, M-U-X and texture. So it's like a muxture, music texture. And they were explaining to me like some heuristics that have guided them through their sound design experiences over the years. But even James, is it's profoundly feel and listening back and trying things on. It's like trying to get the right fit of clothing onto your body. The body is what you need to start with an understanding of. What are you saying and why? What's the content? And then what you're trying on with the clothing 
it has to fit somehow. And sometimes you got to try on a bunch of shirts before you nail it. And sometimes you have an idea of your style and sometimes you don't, right? So there's like a little bit that you can do before, but a lot of it is you got to put on the clothes. And most people do is they wear cartoonish, outlandish Hawaiian shirts when it's not appropriate to do so. Like that's the addition of music and sound when maybe the story itself didn't warrant it or you don't necessarily know what fits yet. Yeah. Is sound your main tool to effect that resonance that you're talking about? No. And I'm fascinated by the fact that we started this way and spent so much time on it because I almost never talk about this publicly. I mean, maybe it's a big piece of the show and the way people latch onto it. That's great. I'm grateful. For me, it's it's narration. It's story. It's I'm a writer. And so the like my shows are written. And a lot of the moments you're hearing me hopefully sound improv. There's some moments you're like, Jay's reading a script here. But there's some moments where I'm riffing and I'm either riffing off a script or the words themselves are being delivered like an actor would off taking the script off the page and putting it publicly. So yeah, I think a lot of this is truly the story. It's actually the combination or interplay, I should say, between the premise, not just the topics I'm exploring, but how like I'm, the hook, the why, the premise of the show, and then the story structure how I'm actually increasing tension or adding questions on your mind and then resolving them. And then the undulation, the movement up and down of that tension spiking, tension relieving. Simple stories revolve around one question or one moment of tension. No story means there is no tension, but complicated production has a lot of moments of tension. I'd love to drill down into that because I found that I do a lot of work in interview shows. And a lot of times, you know, obviously mine is an interview show, but a lot of the production that I do is for interview shows. And yeah. they're the hardest shows to both edit and I would imagine listen to are the ones that lack that story and they lack sure. that arc and they go yeah. all over. I've been working with our hosts to incorporate or at least have a sense of the story arc when they are doing interviewing. But how can podcasters who are maybe they're doing interviews or they're using this, how do they blend a story or give this kind of arc that you talked about with a lot of times a conversation? Think of the most gripping conversations you've ever had. I mean, think of the most gripping interviews you've ever heard. Like you're so immersed in it. And I think what people don't understand is like the structure to a great interview is not intro, 40 minute interview, outro. That's not a plan. That's not a structure. Nor is it walking into that 40 minutes with research, that plan either. What is the arc? What is the flow? You'll hear great interviewers every so often say, we're going to get to that in a little bit. And it's like, oh, they have a plan. Or you hear them like say, like, that's the next section. Like, oh, they have sections. You don't know what's there. Every storyteller, whether it's implicit and by gut feel because they've done it or they're great at it or they've planned it out, every storyteller, interviewer, et cetera, communicator has good structure. And it's on us to get better to steal that structure. I call this performing an extraction. Go to your favorite thing in the world. Doesn't matter if it's there or not. If it's segmented, like it's on the screen, like a sports talk show, they, they show you the segments or it's hidden from view. It's one end-to-end -end interview or one end-to-end -end episode or story. Try to jot down in your notebook. Here's the timestamp of that moment. Here's what they did. And let me guess at why that advanced the story. Why did that grip me? What service did this do to the audience? And so when I needed to find a structure for Unthinkable, I took a notebook. I sat down with my favorite storyteller. I've mentioned him already, Anthony Bourdain. If you follow me around to different interviews, I can't stop talking about the guy because I think he does these gray area stories really well and probably didn't have a recurring structure. But I needed one to guide me. So I just stole what I thought was a structure under one of my favorite episodes. And so when you have that plan, you now know in the interview, even if you're not telling kind of a narrative story, but in the interview, you're going to ask questions that raise or resolve that tension, right? And it could be the dramatic performance or lead up to the question, which is something that is underutilized by a lot of interviewers, or it could be the ordering of your questions because you have a purpose and you have a plan. But without that, you're completely exposed to the guest 
not performing, not showing up. And when the guest does that, when they're not telling stories, they're not gripping, or when the flow of the interview is bland, that is not the subject's fault. As a host and an interviewer, that is your fault. It's your show. So you have to guide the experience. So how are you guiding it? If you can't tell me that, you have work to do before you head to the next interview. Yeah. This is great stuff. It affirms my research here. I think you're just telling me how great of a host I am with my plan here, Jay. The next section <laughs> that I wanted to get into is you're coming up on maybe a thousand episodes, maybe more over yeah. all the shows that you've worked on. What are some, what I would call the non-negotiables or the things that you have systematized or the things that are kind of in the ethos of, that are built into all of your episodes that you make sure, that you just make sure are in there? I think what you're getting at is like, what are the elements necessary to bring that episode to life, but better? Well, there's standards that you have. There's standards that whether it's through storytelling or in production that you have in your head that we're going to make sure that we do this because this is what leads to creating right. a show that creates resonance. What do you feel are yep. those elements that you kind of make sure are in there to create that resonance? Sure. I always said that the best interviewers, you could just tell them the premise of the show literally no other content necessary or context or research, they could deliver something amazing because they could figure it out on the fly. And the missing piece for so many folks, especially folks who are building shows to support their careers, or maybe they're an independent creator like I am, or they work in-house as a marketer. So many people don't have a premise. They just talk topics with experts. The premise is that hook. It's that angle. It's that arc, right? X, Y, pitch it. This is a show about X. Unlike other shows about X, and admit there are some, or at least some content about your topics, you don't own those topics. Unlike other shows about X, only we, Y. Like this is a show about creativity in the workplace. Unlike other shows about creativity in the workplace, only we explore how resonance actually works so we can create more resonant work too, right? That's a crude kind of not planned out X, Y pitch for my show. So that's the first part. You're not going to head into an interview and elevate that interview unless you know what the premise of the show is. If I white labeled it, how will I know it's your show? Because everyone's trying to talk topics with experts. And even if you niche down, even if it's like this is about servant leadership for B2B SaaS executives with more than 20 years of experience in Toronto, the next person that comes along and says, I just want to do that show too. There goes your differentiation. It's a very thin moat that someone can just step over. So it's got to be this perspective you have on what are we talking about, but how are we approaching those subjects? What's our angle into it? What is our hook, our style, our belief we're interrogating, our hypothesis that we have? And then on the episode level, you get to walk into that as a very informed producer or editor or host because you're pressing that person or those topics through the lens of that premise. So it pops out something original because unlike that appearance of that famous person elsewhere, they appeared on your show. Your show explores something very specific and different in a different way. How are you going to create an original? That's how. Don't concoct a gimmick. Press them through your unique lens, your unique premise, and out pops something original. So before you go into any episode, that's a non-negotiable. Is like, is this premise actually developed? Because if it's not, that's the work. People think it's about booking better guests or technical setup. That stuff's actually really easy. The best, most important thing you can do is develop your idea, develop an actual premise into IP, intellectual property, that can drive and support a whole show and create something that, quite frankly, could grow. It's a lot easier to grow something that's growable than try to like get a dud missile to fly. Yeah. The show is Unthinkable with Jay Akunzo, and you're 150 some odd episodes in. You can find it everywhere. But I'm actually excited to have this conversation now because I believe it was recently launched a program or an offering to kind of help people go a little deeper 
with this. Do you want to talk a little about that? Yeah, I have two things on offer. I have a, a podcast course called Global Shows, which is on the nav bar on my website. And I also am starting small working groups of no more than nine creative people focused on B2B marketers and B2B creators who are working with me, getting one-on-one support and one-to-few support over an eight-week span to work on their actual projects. So it's not like video course. That's what my course is. That's not what this Elevate group is. The small working groups is an accountability experience, I guess, where I'm working with them live to elevate their work. Not specific to podcasting, but of course, I get a lot of podcasters in those. Jay, this has been a a fantastic interview. We'll link all that up in the show notes here. Is there anything else that you feel should be said that we didn't say today? No, for as I thank you for letting me talk about my projects. Don't go hiding in a course or like sign up for my accountability group because you're like, well, this will solve my problems. Like the most important thing you can do is establish a practice. Like the way you serve yourself better and also me and you, Hector, is like after listening to this, take the energy that hopefully you have right now, go make something and make it just a little bit better than the last thing. Like the momentum problem is most creators' problems. So solve that actual problem. Stop hiding by following another expert or listening to another show or buying another book, even if it's mine. Go make better stuff. And if you're doing that consistently and you run into a blocker, unbelievable. We have so much information, knowledge, and people available to us at our fingertips to get you unstuck. But unless you're constantly and consistently shipping, the only real problem you have is to consistently ship. So start there. Yeah, go make what matters. I think Jay said that somewhere on his website or something. I wrote it down. It's brilliant. (laughs) Thanks for hanging out with us. We'll see you on the next episode.